Welcome back, my friends, to the Sweet Spot, where IT leaders share the insight with all leaders and others that want to lead. My name is Carlos Vargas, and as in every week, I have my two co-hosts, Howard Holden and Paul Lewis. Hello, guys. Hey there. I enjoy the pocket squares in our new, <laughs> new visual. Yeah, I generally, uh, generally a fan of pocket squares, um, yeah. you know, when I'm not full mountain man. I've never worn a three-piece suit. I've never, rarely do I wear a tie. And uh, of my suits, I've never had a pocket square. So, really, you don't, you, don't even, you, don't even the, you don't even pop the pocket out on your suit? No, nope. nope. don't right. even do that. Really? Yeah. Nope. I much prefer a three-piece to a two-piece. Much Interesting. Preferred. Interesting. Is that aesthetic or is that uh, some other reason? Uh, no, it's aesthetic. It's like, a, I, yeah. I don't know. It's just, just, there's just something about it. I also like, I, I like to do a three piece, and then I like to pop my shirt out and not tuck it in. So oh, nice. Air to the bottom. I think that's kind of a, you know, the the adds a little bit of casual to the otherwise formal dress of the suit. Then you can take off the that's jacket. You look like game. a banker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look like you look like you've actually done some work. I'm I'm so busy. My shirt's come untucked. <laughs> roll up the sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get the shirts where you could roll up the sleeves and still have that extra bit? You can. No, no, but I do like I do like the like to have to have nice looking cuffs. So when you do roll up the sleeve, you get to see that nice little pop of the cuff. Yeah, nice, nice color on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's smart. Yeah, yeah. So, so before the the recording started, we were talking about uh, some some recent trip a recent trip to Disneyland that I took. Recent within the last 24 hours? Recently, it's been more than 24 hours. <laughs> this is Monday. Um, so, so I got to go to the 24 hours of Daytona, which I, I'm a big car nerd. So that's about as close to Mecca as I can get. I, I, I mean, I like Disneyland and all that, but the 24 hours of Daytona was was far better. Um, I got to meet the CDO for NASCAR, who owns the the Daytona uh, track and that that particular racing. Um, I don't know what it's called. The, the, not not just the event, but the whole kind of thing. Right. Um, and and it was really it was a ton, just a tremendous amount of fun. It's amazing how many people like come to those events versus even football or baseball or whatever. Right. Another uh, left turn. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, what's cool about this is they actually have a like a, a road track, so they have the big banked circle, right? Right. That, that they're going to use it for NASCAR, but then through the middle they have a, a road track that a road course that they go on. Hmm. Um, so it's not it's not all lefts. And before the race started, they actually took us out with professional drivers and did a hot lap. Interesting. That was amazing. Those guys were pushing the hell out of those cars. And then they let you drive it for another lap. And then we wrecked and everybody died. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went, then, then because we went to Daytona and I got to see race cars, the next day I took my wife to Disney World. Nice. And we went to the Magic Kingdom, which mm -hmm. was great, I guess. Um. <laughs> I will say Disney's doing a far better job of customer service than they were before using their digital platform, right? Right. Um, their new mobile platform. Yeah, their new mobile platform. If you plan appropriately, 
you tell it what parks you're going to, you tell it what experiences you want to have while you're there, and it makes suggestions throughout and says, hey, go stand in line at this point, go stand in line at this point, go stand in line at this point. And if you follow it, it's done a pretty good job of making sure you can see everything you wanted to see that day. Right. So there's a Disney Genie version, which is the help you find your day. There's a Genie Plus where you pay extra to get some fast pass-like features. And then there's a pay-per-use attraction. So right, right. The lightning, the lightning for... lane pay. Yeah. Yeah. Did you subscribe to all three of those services? I didn't do the lightning lane because it ended up not being something that I needed. Because Genie Plus gets you most of those lightning lanes. There's just a few you have to pay extra for. Right. So I did do Genie Plus, And it's a little... I, I wish I would have known more before I bought it kind of thing. Right. Because I didn't realize you can only do, you can only register for, for a ride every two hours. Right. You then register you're taking the ride. Yeah. Co correct. And yeah. and once you do the Disney Genie for a ride, you can't re-reserve that ride. Right. Once. Um, but the, the lines at Magic Kingdom were really short overall. Mm. So I really just kind of, like I used the app, which told me the current wait state. And then I, I used that to with the Genie Plus to pick, like, Thunder Mountain is is one of our favorites, and it, it had a, the longest line of the things we wanted to ride. Like, sure. like, I think Peter Pan may have had the longest ride or something, but I don't do those Fantasyland stuff, so it didn't really matter. Um, but of the stuff we wanted, that was by far the longest. Um, Pirates was 40-ish minutes, so we Not just bad. stood in that. Yeah. Um, and then by the end of the day, I had a an opening on Disney Genie that I could do anything we wanted so i just went well screw it we'll do pirates again because i love pirates nice and then the nice. next day we went to hollywood studios which is the first nice. time i've been to that park but that's the park that has star wars the first time you've been to the park too correct correct wow never been to the park. you've experienced everything there i did rock and roller coaster we didn't uh, I, tower actually, Oh, I I've done Tower of Terror, right? Because because I've been to the California one a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, uh, the my two favorite rides, so, so kind of surprisingly, were um, uh, Rise of the Resistance by far the best ride. I think that's the best ride experience I've had any park anywhere. Yeah. Uh, right. Holistic um, the level of immersion that Disney does is incredible, and I it actually felt like you were walking through a movie set movie set going through galaxies yeah at some right. points i'd argue what you were uh yeah if it wasn't for like the exit <laughs> signs and the restroom signs right if they cover those it's it they could absolutely shoot episodes of tv and, and film there um it it was so good it made me wonder why no one's actually built like a communities that you could go buy a little condo in that that have that kind of thematic thing to it because i would do that tomorrow now, there is a Star Cruiser Hotel, to which is the entire hotel is an experience of being on the cruiser. Do, do they give you a uniform and stuff? Like No. Well, everybody else is uniformed in, but the rooms look like a cruiser. The windows are set up so that it looks like you're looking out in space. It's a whole experience, having never stayed oh, yeah. there, and it just opened. Oh, yeah, I'm down. I'm down. That's pretty, that's pretty okay, awesome. Okay, let, let, let's schedule some time so we can <laughs> all be there. I think we need to. I think we need to record from there. Live podcast, yeah, need, Star Cruiser Hotel. Yep. I think. I think we need. So to. Let, me, let, me, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Because you, you just said something that interests me. 
you mentioned that the way that stuff happened in Daytona was one way. Then in the Disney was a different way. Then in Hollywood studio, it was completely different presentation. So which one do you think that should be used as an example when we're doing something, let's say in a boardroom? Um, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, I think that's a really interesting question, but, but I also think they accomplish very different things, right? On one hand, you have uh, like Star Wars Galaxies, which is incredibly, which is incredibly, you know, focused and immersive. Um, but that's the goal is, is to be immersed in that world, right? Um, you figure if the app, there's only three or four rides there and the average wait on them is all over an hour. Right. The immersion of the line, the, the immersion, like it's an hour to get a, to get a, a sandwich at least, right? <laughs> so if you spend so much time waiting, the immersion doesn't make it feel like a wait. Right. In fact, it well, should be the line and ride should be blended so much you don't really know where one starts and one begins. Like one, yeah. one ends and one starts. Now, what I found really interesting, um, Rise of the Resistance was the first ride I've been on where they use AI-controlled um, uh, cars. The cars aren't connected. Right. Right. They're, they, they're, they're just cars. They just auto-drive. Right. Um, and there's a little bit of like decision-making process right when they when they split at the end and then and then go to like the four thing and then realign again there's a yep. little decision making process you can see you can almost like see occur um it, it that change alone like think think about that change from a technology standpoint right um i no longer have to manage the tracks and all the stuff that goes along with the tracks and the maintenance of that particular component and and kind of how that drives maintenance Instead, they're autonomous cars that that talk to each other, which also means I can pull them in and pull them out as individual cars and replace them without interrupting, really interrupting the day. Like if I right. even if I were to lose a car and all of a sudden what was four cars becomes three cars, I'm likely not destroying the experience and I don't have to stop the whole ride for an hour while I manage stuff that's on a track. Right. You can easily displace it and it just sits back into the system again. They all start to work together. And then the the Minnie and Mickey ride. Runaway. Yeah. Runaway. Yeah. That took that to a whole nother level. Hmm. Right. Because now they're using projected video on everything. Right. Which also means not only are the cars, because the cars were also completely separate, right? Are the cars AI and thus how the cars moved and where they went? could have a decision framework, but then so could the video. So you could likely have some randomness involved in what the specific experience is ride to ride down to what scenes play and what scenes don't play, right? So your ability to keep the ride fresh is mind boggling. And can be personalized. So imagine you could be able to get in and say, you know, I need a less intensive experience, right? Less turning right? Or I need it to be brighter because I have visual impairment. You can control that process even just on your app, right? To say, here are the things that I need to custom every time I go on a ride. And it just occurs as I run it, step in. 
Well, and if we use AI, you could even do it, you could do it at multiple points throughout the ride. Mm -hmm. Right. You could see, you could, you could look for the signs that someone's back got injured because, because the ride was too jerky. You could look for signs that a child was terrified right. and instantly change oh, exactly. their right. ride. You could even, you could even change the intense intensity of a, of one of the cars versus right. all of the cars. Right. So you could actually have one car that dynamically that went, Hey, there's, four-year-olds in here right and so we're going to do less left to right jerking slower right. acceleration right and just minor tweaks to that to change you know the difference between 1.3 g's and 0.9 g's is, is rather huge mm -hmm. but probably not overly significant in total time where you could dynamically do that on an individual car basis which was impossible to do a very short when they're all on a chain, yeah, yep. yeah, it's just—it's just incredible to me how, uh, you know, how how in depth that is, and yet at the same time, how how Disney, I think more than anything else, makes that sort of stuff seamless. Ninety nine point nine nine percent of visitors are never going to notice any of the things we just discussed. That being said, the static parts of Rise of the Resistance was were just as spectacular. Like walking into the docking bay, right? Big, wide, open, ready to see space, and you know, dozens of stormtroopers, right? That, like that is an impressive static display. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> there was nothing that I wasn't kind of blown away with, right? Right. Um, and and we did the uh, the lightsaber thing where you go to the store and you can. We didn't. I, I didn't reserve. You didn't buy one. I didn't know that was a thing, so I didn't build my own. But in looking really? at what you were building, well, no, I'm actually okay with it because looking at what you were building, they're not, I'm not overly impressed. However, I did buy the a prop replica. Ah. And those things are super impressive. The pre built one, yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. When I was there in the summer with my son, we in fact did create our own and went through the entire process. It was a 20 minute show of, Putting it together and you know reciting the Jedi chant and right. you know hearing video and it was a whole orchestrated process. It was worth the premium just to watch the process. Okay. Did yeah. you what what crystals did you buy and did you buy replacements? Like did you leave with more than one? We only had one and it's a uh, blue light. I don't know what right. that because you know you can like that's the only thing that you can do with the ones that you build yourself that is not possible with the replica. You can replace the crystals. You can yeah. replace the crystal and change the color. Now I kind of wanted to do the robot. I I uh, I didn't even realize that was a thing, but so I obviously didn't register for that either. But I kind of would have had fun building my own my own droid. It, it did look cool. I definitely, we definitely need to go back. <laughs> We yeah. I, I, I do think we need to do some like <laughs> on premise live podcasting. I think that would be a, a ton of fun. Somewhere so beginning March first. What's well, it was negative seven at my house this morning. Whatever. And it, it rose to an impressive 14 degrees. So I'm cool if we don't wait till March. Just <laughs> Kind of FYI. <laughs> so, looking at everything that you mentioned, and we did a little bit of a segue already, and I was trying to see where you were going to go, but I think that the experience that you get on a presentation should be 
I'm not going to say that had to be a Star Wars or a Disney-like, but the idea that they take into consideration what you see, what you hear, how it get presented to you, isn't that important when you're presenting and if you don't know how to really communicate the message, that could be a problem? You mean in a conference-like setting? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's two sides, right? In in the same way that the ride engages you long before you get to the punchline, right? I mean, how, how long is the average ride? 25 seconds, 35 seconds? Yeah. Like most of them are really short, wow. and you're in line for two hours. Rise of the right. resistance went up to 170 minutes, and it was a low capacity day. Yikes. Right. So yeah, so so just short of three hours, people waited in line for that thing. Um, right. For what is ultimately a very short ride, a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that, that, you know, Disney goes out of their way, and as does every park, to keep you engaged through that duration, it's kind of the job of a presenter to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I don't know that I could count the number of conferences I've been to and the number of sessions I have sat in where five minutes in to a 30 minute or hour long session, I'm already on my phone. Right. Right. Like, like I, I, Oh, look, I found the article that this person based their entire talk off of. I've read the article. Now I'm four more layers deep because they've lost me. They're not, they're not engaging me in any meaningful way. Right. Or they're spending eight minutes on a slide. I already read the slide. They're really just reading from it. And now I'm back on my phone again. I find there's a distinct difference between a parallel session and a main stage. Main stage, in many ways, people are forced to be there, right? So they're arguably disinterested until such time as you make them interested. However, they self-select to go to the individual session, right? They've determined that this is better content than some other content. And therefore, at the very least, they, of their own decision-making process, have walked into this room. So there's a little bit of difference there, even sure. though the amount of time you have is potentially relatively the same. For sure. But I would also say conference organizers tend to put the people they know to be the best presenters on the main stage. True. Right. So the quality of the presenter also tends to go up versus the side conversations, right? The, 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 whatever you want to, the side quests that you go on versus the main quest, right? The ones you've chosen. <laughs> Um, the quality of the presenter varies enormously. It's not even close. Right. Right. And that, and, and kind of that duality is also, you know, a relatively important component all in all. So this week I was at a conference and I did two things. I presented and moderated a, a round table, but it was a well attended one. Let's say there are 30 people in the room and I presented a main stage content for about, 35, 37 minutes. Which one would you believe was the most interesting or the most difficult or what my preference might have been? <laughs> and more specifically, what would have been your preference had you given the opportunity to want to do one of those two things? Mm. I mean, that depends. Like, I would Let's assume the topic's the same. So it's, a, it's not a top, it's topic independent. I would have preferred to do whichever one was longer. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's so easy for me to rabbit yeah. hole on a topic that that I I don't have to overly think about it. But you give me 15 minutes, it's problematic. 
The difference, of course, is that when you're up on stage, you can tell a compelling story without interruption and you can flow, you can control the speed, you determine what people want to hear. Versus in a moderated session or roundtable, while you can start it off and you're going to have interesting opinion, debate will spark, may disagree with you. So as an example, the way I, how I moderated this particular roundtable is I did it in four sections. Each section I had two or three slides to start it off, right? I want to kick off some content, have a point of view. And after my first section, the very first uh, roundtable member said, I disagreed with 50% of what you just said. <laughs> that was the kickoff to the entire rest of the hour. I didn't. I did not say I disagreed with fifty percent of what you said. <laughs> you weren't there, but no, one of the one of the CDOs explicitly said that. Which you know, I'm not offended because you clearly can have as much opinion as you wish. But you know, that was the start. Versus that clearly doesn't happen on a main stage. So then I spend a good hour not debating with the rest of them, but having a healthy desk discussion even on topics to which I vehemently disagree disagree with them on. Sure. So of the 50% as an example, I didn't generally believe their point of view was actually accurate. And I, and I didn't defend my opinion. I just told stories that made them rethink about whether their opinion was accurate or not. <laughs> I mean, I had a similar experience in a moderated roundtable. I was not the moderator. I was an attendee. And I tend to have it at many, right? Because it goes back to something I've said on this podcast before. We don't understand the value or power of language. And so we, we being the industry as a whole, tend to allow it to be well misused to the point of beyond exhaustion, hmm. right? So zero trust, I'll use that as an example, right. right? Zero trust is a fantastic concept that has been beaten to death and so watered down that it doesn't mean zero trust anymore. Right. Right. Digital transformation. <laughs> Digital transformation is a very specific definition. Agreed. Incredibly specific definition that revolves around one thing and one thing only. Anything else is simply not digital transformation. Right. And yet it's it's the key marketing bullet and everything that that does that the key marketing bullet isn't zero trust or AI. Right. Like pick, you can use zero trust AI or data fabric. Those are the, those are like your slide must contain one or more of those. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and, and so, so I was in another moderated topic, another moderated conversation where digital transformation came up and the other speakers had no clear understanding what it really meant, what, it, what the intent was. Right. And, and so, yeah, I disagreed in a very firm manner. I, I don't think I was rude in any way, shape or form. Right. I, I don't, I don't aim to do that, but, but I think sometimes it comes down to if we allow the language itself to be fluid, especially in these really important concepts, then we kind of invalidate the value of the concept. And the reason the concept became a thing to begin with was it had a lot of validity, right? Right. And we let marketing get in the way. And then we let organizations that don't understand it get in the way. And we allow people to redefine these things. And before long, digital transformation just means digitizing. Agreed. Not remotely what the hell it means, right? Um, I got in a discussion with someone about customer centricity, which is what digital transformation is all about. 
Of course. And he said, customer centricity is what we've been doing for years by keeping the customer in focus. I said, it is absolutely unequivocally not that. <laughs> right. right. To, to which he said, I think you're full of shit. And I said, I said, you're entitled to your opinion, but it is completely invalid. Because without data, you cannot be customers, you cannot have customer centricity. And, right. and it simply is true. We did not have the data 30 years ago. We just didn't have it. There was no way to access it. There was no way to activate it. There was no way to, to get value from it. And, and, and that was two months ago. And, and in the two months since then, the way I talk about it now is um, I, I think a lot of the people that listen to this are part of sales organizations. Yep. And almost every sales organization likes to say they leave a, a seat at the table for the customer that no one sits in. Yes. Okay. I've I just, I, times. why is that incredibly, incredibly bad? Because what that tells me is the customer is to be seen, but never heard. There's no voice. <laughs> that doesn't have a voice. Right. Think about it. That customer, yep. that chair never speaks. That They're chair just listening now. Right. Exactly. That chair, so what you're saying then is it's like a child in the 50s. It's meant to be seen but never heard. Right. Right. <laughs> Where what customer centricity very specifically does is use data to give voice to the customer. And if I'm not using data and I'm not using the right data and I'm not listening in the right way, then the voice, I'm never going to hear the voice of the customer telling me what they'd actually like me to do. Uh, along the same lines, the the 50% they disagreed with me on was how I was defining the value of data, right? So you've heard me pitch. I'm sure you've even said it yourself that the bigger pot you have, the bit, the more data that you have, the more nuggets of gold you'll find, the more precise your algorithms. Because so, forth. so he philosophically believed that data is irrelevant and only information had value. So what you create out of that data. And I said, wow, that's incredibly interesting. I wonder if the makers of Lego believe that to be true, <laughs> right? Yeah, or I think the that's... Lego value, even though it can create multiple, multiple models out of that, or is the well, model valuable? You know, yeah. wh why then Google and Facebook or all these companies that keep data to then derive their information? I mean, well, I, could, he had, I could he had an aged out opinion, right? So at some point, data ages out. And while some of that might be true, like there's some real-time IoT data that ages out almost immediately. But but I would I would put on the table that data doesn't age out, but its use in a particular use case might, right? So last month's sales data is not interesting for this month's sales. But it might be interesting if I'm looking at 12-month trail of sales. Right. So, yes, it won't be used for today. It might be used for tomorrow. That doesn't actually negate the value of the original data, even though I might mm -hmm. use it differently. But what does age out is, in fact, information. That actual last month's sales report isn't as interesting as this month's sales report. So, you know, that's that was can kind I of the TPS report. Well, I mean, the, the like I can I can kind of see his point. Mm -hmm. Data in and of itself doesn't have any value, right? Not individually. C correct. It, it is it is a Lego. And yeah. one two by three block has incredibly minimalistic value. And right. if you were to walk up to a child and hand them a two by three block and say, please make from this whatever you can, what they're going to make from it is a, a rock and throw it at your head. 
<laughs> right. right. It, it, not, it doesn't really have any value in and of itself. Right. So, so within the context of kind of that way to look at it, which I think is an incredibly pedantic way to look at it, he's right. The insights that you gain, the information is where the value is located. That's right. Right. Um, well, my point was that a thousand pieces Legos is better than 10 pieces. Because you can add more things. Absolutely. Right? right? I've got 10 Lego pieces. I have roughly 100 ways I can put that, to, that thing together. Right. You give me 1,000 Lego pieces, I have a billion ways I can put that together. Right. Right. I have a 1,000 thousands ways to put that together. Right. And, and that's, kind of, that's kind of where I was going with it. Um, the data always has this, that, that six by six Lego always has the same value. It does not, it, the value doesn't actually change over time. It always has the same value. The, the project that I create with it, the question that I ask of it, and the answer that I get back both magnifies and goes stale nearly immediately. Right. Right. Like it magnifies the value of the indi individual pieces of the data, right? It makes the value of the data greater than the sum of its parts. And at the same time, instantly starts a clock that ages that particular dimensional view of that data right through that lens, kind of to your point. But, but then the data is still immediately usable for another question. It's still immediately it valuable for another question. Yeah. And, and you can't look at it as two separate things. You have to look at it as, you know, the same thing. You have to look at it kind of Legos is a, is a great way to look at it, right? Uh, all I do is take the data that I use to create that car. I throw it all back in the bucket and then I'm going to create car V2 or a spaceship. Yeah. The next and if I add more Legos, I now have the potential of creating something new and interesting, right? I've got sure. another piece I never had before, and I wonder what that car looks like now. Yep. But, but back to the premise. I build two cars. What I build was... a racetrack. I build a city. Give me enough what... Legos, I can build the world. So what's more interesting to you in that context there? Being involved in moderating a conversation like that or standing up on stage for more time than that moderation or, or, or less time? and telling a compelling story that doesn't have that level of interaction. Uh, I like the interaction, but, but I also find that like the right amount is three people. Right. Right. The, the, the right amount is that dialogue. Like in a moderated session, we don't normally get the time we just took to talk about the moderated session. <laughs> That's true. Right. So, but, but I think that's where the interesting stuff starts. The interesting stuff starts when you state a position, someone responds, then you get a chance to respond because it's not until that second full response that nuance starts to come out. It's not, it's right. And until that point, you're really not getting into stuff that's more interesting than a PowerPoint slide, right? So you, so you have to figure out a way to be part of sessions that, that do that, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, really just an introductory thing where you get to be a mouthpiece for a minute at a time. And I don't actually find that interesting. So to wrap up, Carlos, Speaking. I would say what we agree to here is that we enjoy moderated roundtables. We enjoy going up stage presenting, but we detest panels. Yeah. <laughs> so panels are obnoxious and annoying. So it's interesting because you mentioned something that we have seen in the idea of a session is to go and try to learn, not just to have an argument. 
And sometimes the panel become, because there's so many people, it become an argument. But when you have a smaller set that can actually, you have an interesting point of view, you share some things. Most of the time, you learn something. If you learn something out of a session, that's a good idea. If you don't learn anything, you go like, oh, what the freak they are actually talking about. <laughs> you just want to see your time. And I think actually the takeaway is um, use data to build a session that provides information. Right? I've been to a ton of, se a ton of sessions that were very, very data heavy, but I didn't learn anything. Not because the data wasn't valuable, not because the data wasn't relevant, but because it provided me no useful information. Right. So when you're thinking about building your story, think about what is that story going to tell? That story delivers information, not just data. Well, my friends, there you have it. Make sure that when you are the one preparing the session or preparing your presentation, understand what you're doing, the value that you're bringing. When you have to be on a panel, make sure that you do your research because a lot of times people in the audience, they know at least something and you want to connect with them. And when you are presenting, make sure that you do your research so you can hit it out of the park. My friends, we'll see you next week. Make sure that you comment, you subscribe, share this with your team, and we'll see you on our next episode.